Hello everyone, uh, welcome to this UCL lunch hour lecture on orbits, research with schools and projects that transform inclusivity in science. Our speaker today is Dr. William Dunn. Dr. Dunn uh, has run Orbit since 2017. He currently holds the prestigious Ernest Rutherford Fellowship in the UCL Astrophysics uh, Department, through which he X-rays planets with NASA and ESMA spacecrafts, which is incredibly exciting. Before his uh, ERF, he held fellowships at the Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics in the US um, at uh, the European Space Agency. Um, and at the uh, ESAC and UCL's Mullard Space Centre, um, which is here in the UK, uh, where he undertook uh, his PhD and his postdoctoral research. Prior to his PhD, he launched, program, he launched programs for Amazon and spent six years working on shop floors for the Arcadia Group while doing his um, MSI at UCL. Uh, at various points in his life, he has been a semi-professional dancer, a semi-professional Magic the Gathering player, um, and a school governor. He has also endeavoured to see as much of the world as possible. Before we begin, I want to let you know that we will have some time at the end of the lecture for questions, and these can be submitted at any point during the talk via Slido. Um, all you need to do is just enter Slido into your browser, which is sli.do, and then use the event code, which is hashtag inclusive science. Now I will hand over to the wonderful Will uh, for his talk on orbits. Thanks, Abby. Um, can you see my screen? Is this yes. working? Okay, perfect. Um, cool. Thanks, thanks for that introduction. Um, so today I'm going to talk to you about orbits, um, which is our program where we partner researchers with schools to support inclusivity in science and to try to address some, some chronic diversity issues that exist in science. Um, and I guess just generally to try to make people feel like science is for everyone um, and not just for a, a small number of, of people from a certain background. Um, so the Orbits program that we run here, uh, that we run from UCL, but is now also operating in Northumbria University, about to kickstart in Leicester University and also in Kent University. Um, has been, we're, we're very fortunate that it's been recognized through lots of awards in the last couple of years, including the NEON Award for widening access to education. Um, we're currently an Ogden Trust, uh, the, the Ogden Trust Collaborative uh, funding partner. Um, and we've been, we're very fortunate to have had lots of funding from the UK Space Agency, from the European Research Council, um, and from uh, the UCL Widening Access Department. And without, particularly without the UCL Widening Access Department, I don't think, well, I, I mean, the program simply wouldn't exist. Um, so today I'll probably skip over who I, who am I uh, because Abby just covered that. Um, I'll talk about why I think orbits is important. Um, I'll talk about what the program is um, and I'll talk about if if you're interested in getting involved in whatever capacity you feel you can, um, what you can maybe do to be a part of it. Um, so uh, I can skip over this. This is a slide about me. So I, yeah, so I'm an Ernest Rutherford Fellowship at UCL um, and typically I look at the northern lights on other planets and x-ray emissions from other planets and so this image down here shows um hubble observations of the ultraviolet aurora on on jupiter and so you can see things like trails from the moons of jupiter uh, this is io one of its moons and europa there and lots of crazy flashing lights um so in in a research capacity i look at this um but i also have coordinated the orbits program since 2017. Uh, so why is orbits important and why does it need to exist um so I'm just going to move this bar here. <laughs> um, so particularly in the UK, but I think these problems are, are, are generally global. Um, we have chronic shortages of, of science teachers and particularly physics teachers. So for instance, one in seven schools in the UK don't have a physics teacher at all. Um, so that means that the average GCSE student in the UK is more likely to, to receive their physics education from uh, a biology teacher than they are from a physics teacher, and, and then also more likely to receive it from chemistry teachers, from maths teachers. Um, so that means that, for instance, we have 30% less A-level students doing, uh, doing physics now than we had in the 1980s, despite population growth and things like that. Um, so we have chronic teacher shortages in the UK, and we also have chronic diversity issues. Um, in science and really the representation of people who are doing science isn't reflective of the demographics that represent society in the UK at all. So for instance, at A-level physics, that's beyond age 16. 
um, less than 20% of those doing physics are girls. Uh, you can actually count the number of, of black PhD students on two hands um, across the whole of the UK, which is mind boggling um, and pretty horrific. And, and these, these diversity issues have been long, long standing. It's been kind of stagnant and, and the representation of, of students from, for instance, low incomes, where if you're from a low income background, you're three times less likely um, to do A-level physics than those from the highest income backgrounds, and you're six times less likely to get an A in A-level physics than those from the highest income backgrounds. Um, so really, those who make up the majority of physics and science in the UK at the moment represent a small proportion of all of the demographics in society. Uh, here are just those numbers on, on like ethnic distribution of, of uh, physics students in the UK, and you can see that there are when the study was carried out by the IOP in 2010, uh, in 2017, sorry, there are a grand total of uh, 10 black PhD students. Um, so, so fundamentally, this means that I think people don't feel that science is for them. And there are particularly people from certain backgrounds aren't able to feel like they can be a part of science. Um, and so we run the Orbits program as, as our effort. And, and I think the impact shows that it's a successful effort and endeavor to, to try to make a difference to this and make more people feel like they can be a part of science. Um, so what is Orbits? So Orbits was started by um, my colleague, Clara Sousa Silva, um, back in 2014, 2015. Uh, and at the time she was a PhD student working with uh, Professor Jonathan Tennyson here at UCL. Um, and she paired up with a group of school students from uh, Hyams Park School, which is in North London. Um, and she introduced them to lots of her physics PhD student colleagues um, and got them working on some active research. And they were looking actually at, at molecular lines, so spectral lines that we see coming from molecules. Um, and the students worked super hard and, and did some amazing stuff and managed to um, discover things that led to publishable um, work. So uh, this went pretty well. Um, and the teachers seemed to really like it and the students seemed to really like it. So. Um, Clara and her colleagues ran it again the following year. And then basically from that point, we've we've kind of expanded mostly through word of mouth. Um, but particularly we try to target schools that have low numbers of physics teachers, i.e. one or less physics teacher and, and schools in areas where school students typically don't get these opportunities. Um, and so particularly we're working with pupil premium students. So they're students from um, certain income demographics. Um, and we ensure that at least 50% of every group is pupil premium and at least 50% of every group of uh, orbit students and girls, uh, or minority genders. Um, so since this point, we've expanded, and this year I think we'll be partnering with maybe 55 schools. Um, we haven't had a school that where we've run orbits in person with the school. We haven't had a school want to drop off the program. Uh, and I think that in the eight years that it's been running now, I think that says something pretty powerful about uh, the impact of the teachers and the impact that the school students at the school um, feel that they're gaining from it. So how does it, how does it actually work? Uh, so I'm just going to miniaturize this. Um, so Orbits is very much not a one-off visit. You're pairing up with the school for multiple terms and maybe up to an entire year. And you're going to the school once a week for those multiple terms. And you're working with the school, a group of school students and making sure that they're involved in what is original research. Um, here you can see my colleagues Jasmine and Andy who are working with uh, school students from Rickards Lodge School and uh, Wimbledon High School. Um, down in southwest London. Um, so the school students will gradually grow ownership of the research that they're working on until um, until a point where it transitions to the point where they own the research and they dictate the direction of it. Uh, and at the end of this program that lasts multiple terms, um, they'll come to UCL or this year, this year Northumbria or Leicester or Kent universities, um, and they'll present all of the cool new research that they've been working on. Um, and I think I've said these stats already, but to ensure that we're trying to be as inclusive as possible, our, our baseline is that 50% of every group has to be people, premium students, and 50% have to be girls. Um, and if you're interested in getting involved in this uh, and you're a PhD student, then we can pay you, and it's slightly more than this this year because it reflects um, increases because of inflation. Um, so, um, so what impact do we see from this? Uh, so what we see as we see at the schools that we partner with, we see 100% increases in the number of girls taking A-level physics um, if they do orbits at GCSE. 
the vast majority of students doing orbits go on to take uh, STEM subjects at the next level. Um, some of the schools where we have the data have reported that the school students um, not only contribute directly to research, but that, that feeds back into their curriculum education. And we see giant jumps in, um, in their grade attainment between GCSE and A-level uh, when they take part in orbits. Um, since 2018, I, I believe we're world leading for this. Since 2018, we've supported more than 220 school students to author papers. Um, I don't know of any other initiatives that have, have managed to support that many school students, um, but maybe there are some others out there. Um, but I think what that says is it's a reflection of the authenticity of the research that the school students are actually being involved with. Um, yeah, over the last four years since I've been running the program, we 100% of the teachers on the program have stayed on the program for the four years. And so I think in that sense as well, that's a reflection of the fact that we're also maybe supporting teachers to to find their inspiration um, for science again and to rediscover the things they love about science because I think the IOP described the state of, of physics teachers in the UK as um, like you've only turned on the bar four to half and you've left the plug out. So the, lots and lots of teachers leave physics each year, leave, leave schools each year because um, the system doesn't support them enough or it doesn't provide them with the inspiration um, the inspiring aspects of science that they found uh, prior to that. So, um, so we think based on this evaluation and and um, and based also on a lot of qualitative evaluation and and things that we hear back from the school students, we think that it's having a positive impact and it seems to be having a positive impact in improving inclusivity in science. Um, particularly this year, we're super fortunate to have. Um, Megan Joseph doing her PhD at UCL, um, and she was in that very first cohort of orbits. Um, and Megan directly cites orbits as the reason that she, as someone from a low-income background, felt that she could um, go on to do science and and even go on to university in the first place. Um, so, actually, several of her other classmates as well are, are now physics teachers or or also doing PhDs. Um, So it seems pretty clear that the orbits as a research model is, is really supporting school students to feel like, and particularly school students from backgrounds that aren't well represented in science to feel like they can go into science. Um, what we also see is that it has a very positive impact on the researchers who are involved. Um, this is kind of multifaceted. So for starters, we see that there's this strong the program is really focused on the symbiosis between research and and, um, and your, your work in inclusivity, right? It's not taking time out of your research work to go to a school and talk about something that's unrelated to your research. You're actually doing your research just in a different setting. And we really, every project that we run, we really try to foster that and ensure that, that it's authentically the researcher's research that's going on in that school, school environment. Um, so it's not time taken out of your research to to do outreach is time where your research is in the school environment. And because of that, what we see is that the benefits of orbits are really, um, we see strong benefits for the researcher in terms of both their communication skills. You're very rarely going to get better communication skill, skill feedback than when you go to a classroom, you present the things, uh, you tell them all about the science, this amazing, inspiring science that they're going to be doing. And then you go back the following week and you realize actually they had no idea what you were talking about. And I think that's really important. It's really important that we have that feedback loop. And if you go and you do one-off session, outreach sessions, you never get that feedback. You never have that, that very brutal constructive criticism where you realize actually they don't know what I'm talking about and they need to find better ways to explain this. And I think for, for me personally, and for a lot of our researchers, what we see is that feeds directly into how they present at conferences, directly into how they deliver posters, directly into how they write proposals. Um, I personally think that it's hugely benefited my proposal writing because what you have to do when you go and you deliver these research projects with school students, you have to understand the big picture context for it and also how that peters down into the small scale details that the school students are going to be um, interrogating. And when you do that, I mean, that's essentially the nature of when you write research proposals for funding or for telescope time or, or for computing time yeah. or for any aspect of science where you need uh, support. You have to pitch the big picture, you have to isolate those questions that you're going to answer with their funding or whatever aspect that they're giving you, um, and you have to go through that very carefully. And I think 
delivering research projects in this manner with with classrooms is is arguably the best training you'll ever get for thinking in that very clear structured um, manner. It it gives our future lecturers at universities um, pedagogy training that's well beyond anything that they would they would get otherwise within a PhD or a postdoc. Um, you're getting actual in-classroom training and also we work with school teachers to make sure that we're training the researchers um, we partner with school teachers who, who provide training for the researchers i think this one is is sometimes overlooked but i've certainly had three publications come out of things that the school students in the room discovered that i just wouldn't have had otherwise um, and that's because Either I didn't have time or inclination to go through those data sets in the manner that they do or the detail that they've gone through it, or I just had got locked into a way of thinking about it that, that didn't come at it from a new angle. Um, and so certainly I personally have had three publications come out of Orbit's projects that just wouldn't exist without working with the, uh, with the classroom. Um, and I think that's true for many, many of our researchers, at least over the 20 publications that we're um, that we now have either published or or in review at the moment. Uh, I think the vast majority have come out of things that were either serendipitous in the data that we didn't expect to find, or things that the school students found that we wouldn't have had time or inclination to find. Um, for for researchers, I think I think something that's generally missing from um, from PhDs and from postdocs is is rigorous leadership and management training. Um, and when you go to a class, you're probably not going to get better management training than trying to convince a room full of teenagers that they should be interested in the science and they should have a go at it. Um, and I think because of that, it's probably one of the best programs of people management training that you'll get. To go to that classroom, to get to know those students, to understand their motivations, why are they there in the first place, what are the challenges in front of them, and how can they navigate it, and how can they navigate it as a group and as individuals is, is pretty powerful management training that otherwise is just unaccessible on PhDs and, and postdocs. Um, and, I, and I guess fundamentally, it, when you do programs like this, it's a chance to change young people's lives, and we've seen it, and we have countless now testimonials showing that school, school students' lives have been changed by involvement in this program. And because uh, they get to know researchers as, as role models and, and as human beings. Um, I'm going to skip over this. So, so I think I just started to touch on this, but what, why does Orbits work? And if you run outreach programs or you're interested in education or, or, uh, or inclusivity, these are the things that I think uh, I, would, I would suggest you, you take away from this. So um, it works in part because actually the biggest factor when we evaluate it that we found, I thought, I thought the biggest factor would be the involvement in the actual science research itself. But actually almost in 50-50 balance with that, the thing that the school students report is just that they got to know a scientist, right? This is pretty much every school student on, on the program is never going to have met a scientist or have had the chance to work with a scientist. And what that means is they have these very warped misconceptions about who a scientist is, right? Generally, if you say you're an astrophysicist, then people say, oh, you must be smart, right? Uh, and it's almost a problem that we have Einstein in physics, who's, who's this person who's synonymous with the subject. Um, and it's almost a curse because it, it leads to people thinking, that you need some sort of unattainable genius level intellect to be a scientist. And I think what, one of the most powerful impacts of Orbits is that because we go back and we meet the school students over and over again, we completely, completely shatter that. And they, one of the teachers described it as a very humanizing, um, immensely humanizing impact because they get to see us as actual human beings and realize, oh, actually that's someone I could be. I could, I could be a scientist that's not so far removed and they don't have this level of intellect that's completely unattainable. Critical as well is that we, we're not going and we're not handing a body of knowledge to the students. We're building their sense of agency and their sense of ownership over it and they get to dictate the, the eventual direction of the research project. That's not possible at the beginning, right? This is why you, you need these long-term projects because at the beginning, they don't have the knowledge and, and, and background information to do that. But somewhere about the midpoint of the project, that they get to own the science and they get to decide the direction that it's taking and they get to create new science is something that's very different to what they'll have experienced in the classroom. In a the classroom, they'll have been given a body of knowledge and that body of knowledge has existed for a hundred years. 
They're probably wiring up the same circuits in schools that have been wired up since the 1980s, and that's based on experiments that were done in the 1930s. Instead, what orbits gives them is a chance to be right at the cutting edge and right at the forefront of science and to and and actually to create new science. Um, and I think that's a very powerful shift in mentality in, that we see in the school students from rote learning things and picking up things that have already been uh, that have existed for tens of years to the fact that actually they're creating. Um, the schools that we work in unanimously the teachers report that they just don't have time to do it. there are other research in schools programs in the uk that run the vast majority of them um our teachers report that they just couldn't do and they couldn't do them because if you're the only physics teacher at a school and you're responsible for the entire physics curriculum across that school and how that physics curriculum is taught across the school and the grades of the students and the excellence of the teacher teachers who aren't physics specialists in delivering it you are very much overworked and very much over timetabled and you just don't have time to deliver research in schools projects it, it's just not it's it's completely infeasible and so these sorts of opportunities are just inaccessible for the vast majority of schools that we work with and in, in that sense the vast majority of the schools in the uk where there just aren't physics teachers who have time and capacity to do this so by pairing a, a researcher with the school what we do is we provide a subject specialist who can take that pressure off of the teacher and can deliver the sessions without without the teachers having to take time off away from uh, their timetable and away from all of those other commitments that they have in the school. It's very much about supporting the teachers and partnering with the teachers and not giving them a program that they then deliver. Um, and particularly, I want to come back to this mentorship thing because the other models don't offer mentorship. Um, they don't pay you with someone, and that's profoundly important. For the kids to get to see a scientist and get to know a scientist as a human being and realize actually these people it comes so at ucl um we have the institute of education and within the institute of education there's a group called aspire um, and they've done lots of studies on uh the reasons that school students don't go on to do science so they have a case study in one of their papers um of a girl who gets uh straight a's at, at a level um and loves physics and otherwise would have done physics and and in many ways would be your dream applicant if you were looking at university students applying to uh, students applying to university. Um, and at the end, at the end of the study, she decides actually having been having them paired with her for many years, she decides actually she can't do physics because she's not smart enough to do it. And this comes back to this Einstein issue. It comes back to this problem that we have where we've ingrained this belief in people that you have to have unattainable intellect to be a scientist. And it's really important that we shatter that and we dispel that. P particularly for those from backgrounds that don't typically go into science, confidence is the biggest barrier. And whatever, if you ever go and you work with these schools and you do programs like this, I would encourage you to think about how you can support their confidence. And I mean their confidence in two senses, both in, in the capacity of them seeing scientists and thinking, I can be a scientist, and also in their capacity to actually be able to have the tools available to them to be able to do science. Um, and I think the beauty of Orbits is that it does both of those things. It gives them role models and it also gives them the chance to do real science. Uh, here are some of those misconceptions that I've been talking about that we see when we study. Uh, we do baseline studies before the school students start it, um, and we look at the things that they that puts them off doing science. Um, and so the Einstein curse is something that I've already talked about. Um, we really need to shatter this idea that science is for the exceptional few. And again, just to come back to this idea that you shouldn't go and do one-off sessions at schools. One-off sessions are potentially, I heard a couple of days ago someone say, yes, but if just one student from those 10 schools that I visited once um, decides to go on to science, then I've done good. But what you're doing there is you're ignoring the fact that you might have put off 99% of the kids in every group. And you might have put them off because you've shown them a very polished, very well-drilled and rehearsed one-off presentation where you you almost reinforce this idea of exceptionalism and that that science isn't available to people because you go you visit and then you vanish and they never see you again uh, and they've just seen this polished exceptional uh presentation by someone who in their mind or in the school's mind is, is exceptional by definition and we really need to break that um part of the problem 
of, of science in schools and a misconception is that it's just rote learning and that it lacks creativity and that just couldn't be further from the truth you can't solve problems that have never been solved before or create new things that the human race has never had before if you're not creative and this problem comes back to the shortages of teachers you can't you can't provide an interesting and exciting national curriculum because there aren't enough physics teachers to deliver it so you have to create a curriculum that is very much rote learning is very much bullet points is very much box tick ticking um, and that drains the creativity from science and there, there i mean we're so fortunate in the uk to have so many amazing teachers um and many of those amazing teachers still despite the dryness of the curriculum manage to find the creativity and manage to inspire the kids with it um but when we have these lack of physics teachers and we have the vast majority of teachers teaching physics not being from a physics background um, and this applies to other subjects as well. It's not unique to physics. Um, it's very difficult to find that creativity and to find that spark and that inspiration. Um, a lot of them consider physics to be lonely. And again, I mean, maybe that was the case 100 years ago. I don't know. But but now I couldn't do astrophysics without collaborating with a colossal number of people. No individual in the world has enough knowledge anymore. The problems are too complex. They're too broad. And so you have to collaborate with lots and lots of people from lots and lots of different places across the world. Um, so again, addressing these misconceptions is, re is really important. I worry about this one the most, I think, the bottom one, um, because typically if you're a school student from a low-income background, if you're a person from a low-income background and you, you get pretty good grades at school, statistically, probably your parents are going to say, go and do a business degree or go and do medicine or go and do law. Um, and that's fine, and, and maybe that's what you'd love to do, but what we hear over and over again is school students being put off from doing science because it's unclear what opportunities exist after doing a science degree. And it's really important that we provide better careers education for school students. And when I say this, I don't mean, I mean the breadth of careers that are available, right? If you do a science degree, what you're basically doing is three or four years of just problem solving. And that ingrains in you a habitual sense that you can solve problems. It, it means that you look at something and you immediately go to try to solve it or make it better. I think that's the strength of a science degree. And I think that's why generally people with science degrees who leave science and go on to other things do very well in those other things, because they've been given this very rigorous problem solving skill set. The problem is that that's not reflected in what people see as a benefit of a science degree. They don't realize that it just opens doors. They think that the only thing that you can do after a physics degree or a maths degree or a STEM degree in general is uh, is to go and do that science, and it's simply not true. Um, so, again, if if you ever communicate with school students, I would really encourage you to try to think about ways that you that you address these misconceptions and try to shatter them. Um, so, some I guess self self reflections on things that I think you can do to try to dispel those things um critically and the most important thing is to listen to them first and not just start talking uh, which i guess is the opposite of what i'm doing in in this session today but um i guess this is on them <laughs> so um it's also really important that you highlight your your fallibility it's again this comes back down to breaking that illusion that that scientists are from this kind of black box elite and have some unattainable level of intellect. It's really important to highlight times that you failed and the challenges that you've come across on that path. So too, too much of the time science is seen as this end result and you never see the two years of struggle that went into that. And I think the strength and the shift comes from storytelling and telling that struggle and telling the times when things went wrong where you put a semicolon in your code where you wanted a colon or something and it broke the whole code and it didn't work and you couldn't find it for like two weeks or you got the wrong result and then you had to go back and re redo it all because you'd made some tiny error at the beginning. All of those things are lost because all that's seen is the end result. And again, that reinforces this idea that we are some sort of intellectual elite that is inaccessible for most people. Um, try as much as possible to support creativity in the classroom. Um, talk about science being international collaboration and particularly 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 present diverse role models show examples of people who don't look like you or sound like you or come from the backgrounds that you come from and make sure that even though you aren't those people that 
you make sure that their spotlight is and they're highlighted and that the kids know that they exist. Um, okay, so those are the things that I think are common misconceptions, the things that you really want to try to address if you go and you talk to school students from low-income backgrounds. They're things that, as much as possible, we try to ingrain in all of the researchers who do all of this amazing research for the school students. Now I'm going to flick back to some of the some examples of that research and just show examples of projects that we've run in schools before. Um, here are some publications. All of the people in, in these green highlighted squares are, are school students from schools who are, have author publications. Um, here's some more. Uh, so I'm, I'm just going to kind of do a whistle-stop tour of some of the different projects that we've run. Um, and this is mostly to try to highlight that I really, initially we had a very narrow view of what types of research school students could do. I think what we're finding is that we're yet to find an area of research that's, that we can't find aspects that school students can get involved in. Um, maybe some of the most successful projects that we've run have been exoplanet projects. So an exoplanet is a planet that orbits another star outside our solar system. Um, and thank, with huge thanks to the Forks Telescope Network um, and La Cumbra Global Observatory, we've we've been able to acquire lots and lots of time on telescopes around the world. And so the school students get to take this time on these telescopes and they get to point them at whatever planet they want and observe that planet. And then they'll study that planet and they'll work out the properties of it. Um, and so through this, we've had three separate scientific publications um, from schools where they've discovered new things about planets that we just didn't know before. Um, and, and in one case, actually the flip of that, where they were supposed to be observing a planet and they'd chosen their planet and they'd adopted it as a classroom and they worked out all, how they were going to observe it and they conducted the observations of it with a remotely with a telescope that was in Hawaii um, and super excited to get the results. Uh, and then the results came in and the planet wasn't there. And so it turns out that planet doesn't actually exist and it was um, a mistake. Um, so that, that kind of sabotaged that project and it's part of the risk that comes with working with school students in with research. But I think it's also exciting that that they were working at a level where they could just determine that a planet simply wasn't there, even though other people had reported that it might be. Um, so we've had a lot of success and so many school students have worked super, super hard on projects involving exoplanets. Um, this is uh, Matt Cheng, he's a PhD student here at UCL. Um, he paired with a school in Malaysia um, and uh, he worked with them on machine learning. So he got them to use some artificial intelligence algorithms to look at data from the Cassini spacecraft. So Cassini was in orbit around Saturn um, and Cassini was studying the environment around Saturn. And so he got them to look at uh, data that looks kind of like this. So this is plasma data. So this is looking at the particles in space um, and magnetic field data, looking at the magnetic fields in space. Um, and they were studying crossings between, um, this is gonna be very hard for the podcast, but I'm pointing at uh, an image where there's um, the sun and it, it throws out particles all of the time and they collide with a barrier that's set up by Saturn's magnetic field. Um, and so the students were studying times when Cassini had crossed this magnetic field between the two different regimes, the regime owned and controlled by the sun, the solar wind, um, and then this regime controlled by Saturn itself, uh, Saturn's magnetosphere. Uh, and so they discovered lots of cool, interesting new things about this boundary between the two. Um, another artificial intelligence algorithm uh, program that, that we've run with school students was uh, a study of craters on the surface of Mars. So basically, in this case, we set the school students up against the neural network and uh, to see whether the neural network of the school students better categorized um, craters on the surface of Mars. And so the results of this is that they came out with a catalog of lots of different craters that exist across the surface of Mars um, and uh, found some flaws in, in a neural network and improved a neural network. Um, that then can automatically discover craters across planetary bodies across the solar system. Uh, this was done by Ali Francis in partnership with the school in Surrey. Um, this is Mark Cunningham. He's a PhD student here at UCL um, and he's from Northern Ireland and he wanted to go back to the school that he'd, he'd gone to, which is in um, a fairly isolated part of Northern Ireland. Um, and so he worked remotely with the school in Northern Ireland and they looked at um, spectrum from different galaxies. And so here's one of his students, Thomas, presenting online uh, on our online conference, showing some of the code that they used uh, and some of the Python code and how they analyzed different spectral lines um, and identified the properties of different spectral lines and therefore the properties of the very first galaxies and the very first stars in the universe. Uh, so I thought this was kind of a cool project that Mark did with, uh, with Bam Bambridge Academy. Uh, here's Luke, he partnered with Hyams Park School, which is the school that 
very first, uh, the very first school to pilot the program seven years ago. Um, and they were looking at, they were using uh, a telescope called ALMA and the school students were looking at places where stars form and planets form and trying to understand um, the processes that produce stars and planets. Um, and they discovered lots of crazy things about the molecules that form in, when stars and planets form. Uh, and another project very similar to this actually found that um, run by John Holchip found that um, at the same time that stars are born, the school students found that also coffee is born. And the very molecules that you might be drinking in coffee right now are born at the same point that stars are born. And I thought that was kind of a cool discovery to, to come out of the school. Um, this is Professor Nick Kilios. Um, he's the EDI Vice Provost here at UCL um, and Dimitri Milas, he's a postdoc here at UCL. Um, and they paired with uh, sick formers from King's, King's College Math School, our, our nemesis, but we partnered with them in this case. Um, and they looked at um, the magnetic environment around Jupiter and how particles travel on that. And so they created this uh, magnetic field model and then each of the kids adopted their own um, electron or ion of sulfur or oxygen or something like that. And they popped them into the, into the magnetic field model and each student studied their own ion or electron uh, at different energies with different magnetic field strengths to see how that particle travels in the environment so that we can better understand what processes govern these magnetospheres as a whole and how particles uh, orbit planets in these very energetic, crazy environments the planets produce. Uh, here's Abby and Corny, and, may, and maybe um, Abby might, I've, I've left this slide quite slim because uh, I wondered if Abby might want to add anything at the end, um, but Abby paired with um, and Corny paired with Newham Collegiate Sick Form. Um, and with that sick form, um, they did lots of crazy quantum mechanics things that I can't really understand. And they use lasers to uh, to generate uh, XUV pulses from particles. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, rather than doing this a disservice, I'll let Abby cover it in a bit when, uh, once I finish. Um, Sam paired with a couple of schools in Nottingham. Um, NUS to Nottingham High um, and worked on black holes and the X-ray emissions that black holes produce when stars are gobbled up by black holes. Um, I, th I think what I'm trying to demonstrate here is just the vast array of very different projects. It kind of blows, it, it blows my mind. And I am a little bit proud that like we've done all of these super, super cool, crazy things with schools and all of them have produced results. So that Sam's results here, this produced two different publications on the winds that come out of black holes. Um, and, he studied, and his students were studying and, and modeling the spectrum. And so you can see spectral lines here that, that come out of black holes when they gobble up stars. And also at the other end of the spectrum, so we've also done like medical physics projects and, and we're moving towards um, a medical physics group. Um, so uh, this group at King Henry School, they studied um, how proteins develop um, in Parkinson's. And they use fluorescence techniques to look at those proteins and to understand um, whether it's potentially reversible, whether, whether it's possible for us to reverse Parkinson's or whether there's some tipping point in Parkinson's disease where molecules can no longer be reversed. And again, it, it, I just think it's super cool that school students are working on this. Um, here's Carlos from Colombia. Um, he's, uh, he's just starting our medical physics hub that I was just talking about. Um, and so they've got so many cool projects happening this year. I think it's super cool that we're going to have school students working on ways of detecting cancer early. Yeah, that's just amazing and exciting. And it's cool that schools might help save, save school, save people's lives. Um, I think that's amazing. Uh, so they've got lots and lots of cool projects coming out of the medical physics group and starting this year with schools. Um, from proton therapy uh, to fluorescence to this cool metabolite technology um, that I'd encourage you to check out, but I'm running it short on time. Michaela's launching our hub in, in Leicester, um, and she's worked with uh, school students for the last few years at St. Richard Reynolds Catholic College, um, and they've been studying how space weather, so storms on the sun, work their way out through the solar system, and when they hit Earth, what does that do to Earth? And is it possible to predict the impacts of those storms by looking at the northern lights and by being able to predict the behavior of the northern lights. So this is a poster that they produced. I should have said, sorry, on this slide here, this was a poster produced by King Henry School. Uh, and this is a poster produced by uh, St. Richard Reynolds from um, school uh, from the conference. So lots and lots of very different and diverse research topics. I'm just going to, I'm going to close the talk today by actually just handing over to some of the school students so you can see them talking about it. Um, so this is a project that ran uh, a year, 18 months ago now at Preston Manor School. Um, and there they were using artificial intelligence again to study uh, the space environment around Earth. 
um, and they discovered something cool that I'll I'll hand over to Jonathan at four minutes forty, uh, and let him talk you through the cool thing that they discovered. Um, so again, Preston Manor is a school that at the time of this only had one physics teacher. Um, it's in a relatively deprived area, and it has a lot of pupil premium students in the school. Um, and the school students within the group represent. Hi, my name is Rachel. I... Uh, I'm just going to swap over to Jonathan because I'm. Gonna... We'll, we'll change. Uh, now, a fun fact out for you is the work we've been doing relates to a beautiful physics phenomenon. How it works is through the tearing instability, which is lots of trapped energy in the magnetic field lines finding a way to escape. Now, this is a diagram, diagram of the magnetic field lines. Over here, you can see the solar wind is pushing back the magnetic field lines of the Earth. And all these lines go back behind the Earth and intersect at this point over here. At this point, a lot of energy is released. So the tearing instability leads to reconnection in the magnetotail. This is the magnetotail, by the way, um, which release, releases a lot of kinetic energy. These energetic particles pass along the magnetic field lines and hit the Earth's ionosphere, creating the aurora, otherwise known as the northern lights. Okay, outliers. Hi, my name. Uh, so I thought that was one really cool project, um, and I believe that paper got uh, submitted to Nature. Um, here's something that other, at the other end of the spectrum. Uh, so this is with uh, this project was done by Osnat um, with Beal High School in East London, um, and so they were studying how perceptions of astronomy had changed during the pandemic. Um, and so this was an SCS project, a science and technology studies project, to understand how science fits into society and how society views science. Um, let me try to get to it. In my research, I focused on ages from 16-year-olds to 24-year-olds and how their use of social media impacted their attitudes towards astronomy during lockdown. I found that because of the, because of the increased interest in astrology and the astrology boom on social media like TikTok, people associated astronomy with astrology and this led to the increasing interest in astronomy as well and it became more popular during lockdown. However, it was more interesting to see that this link also caused um, the credibility of astronomy to decrease and as people associated astronomy with being less rational. I thought that was super cool because we normally we normally think about astro astrology as like almost the enemy of astronomy, right? And, and so it's kind of cool that there's this um, synergy between them where astrology actually potentially can like fuel interest in astronomy. Um, uh, finally, I want to finish with uh, Daisy from my group um, who is looking at Jupiter's Northern Lights and discovered, I mean, uh, this is... I, I was so lucky to have this group of school students. I mean, I think every I think every researcher feels like that about the schools that they get to work with. But they they also sort of scumbagged me a bit because I built this amazing project for them and I thought it was really cool. And they sent and we finally got them to the point where they could analyze all of the data on Jupiter's northern lights from the Hubble Space Telescope or from the Chandra X-ray Observatory, which are like the NASA and ESA flagship X-ray and, and UV observatories. Um and so I gave them this data, I gave them a way to, the ways to analyze it, and then it was over to them to discover whatever they discovered and to take the project in whatever direction they wanted to take it. Um, and so I handed them this stuff just before the Easter holidays, and I thought, right, that's me done for the year. Like, that will keep them busy for ages. And then straight after the Easter holidays, they came back, and, um, and Daisy and Ben were like, yeah, so we've got 200 slides to show you, um, and we've gone through all of the data. And... On it, I mean, I'm still writing up papers about some of the cool stuff that they found from that. Um, but but it also meant I had to go back and re, re pivot, I guess, to try to find new directions for the project because they'd already exhausted all of the stuff that I thought would take them the rest of the year. Um, so here's Daisy talking about some of the crazy stuff. Hi, everyone. Today we're going to talk. Uh, and the main oval is thin and has high emissions on both sides. X-rays also align themselves along or near the arcs, as can be seen. Our group found a more unique observation with many arc structures, including a dawn side arc, which has not previously been noted. Typical dusk side structures. 
The main oval can split into a small section that forks off. It often also splits, leaving a gap in the middle, as shown. Another common structure is when the high emission area has receded to a smaller section. X-rays in the gap. The gap is the section between the dusk and the dawn side, where the most commonly aren't UV emissions. But there are X-rays in this gap, not just in the north, but also in the south. Future directions. In order to thoroughly confirm these main observations and other things we have noticed, more data collection and analysis would be necessary. There is still so much left to learn about auroras and their connections to the magnetic field, so this area should definitely have continued research. On a more general note, having a basic understanding of the aurora within our solar system can help us improve space weather forecasting to protect equipment and open them just at the right time for an observation when there is what you could say good weather. Understanding the magnetic fields of our planets within our solar system can further our knowledge. I'm going to cut Daisy off slightly because I'm wary of, uh, of running out of time. Um, but uh, yeah, so we've we've got a slightly rough around the edges new new website. I should say that the vast majority of the work on orbits is done voluntarily by by Abby and myself and, and many others. Um, so um, you can find out about lots of the research projects that we're running there. You can find out how to get in touch with us there. If you if you're a teacher working at a school and you, you'd like your students to get involved, or if you're a researcher and and you'd like to get involved. I mean, honestly, I have so many schools that really want to do this and, and the limiting factor at the moment is the number of researchers. Um, so it, in whatever capacity you're able to support this, if you'd like to get involved, we'd, we'd love to have you on board um, and we'd love to work with you. And if you're a PhD student, then we can pay you for your time. Um, so yeah, feel free to check out the website or get in touch with me. Um, my email address is w.dunn at ucl.ac.uk. Um, I'm also on Twitter, but I'm switching over to Mastodon a bit at the moment, uh, although I guess we'll see how things go there. Um, so, so yeah, so please feel free to get in touch. Um, I guess in summary, so we've created this program and we've evolved it over the last six years. Um, and I think we've built one of the best research in schools programs in the world. Um, the program seems to have a very positive impact on making sure that school students from groups that typically don't go into science feel like they can go into science. Um, we see dramatic in dramatic increases in um, the number of girls taking A-level physics, the number of uh, black and minority ethnicity kids taking A-level physics, um, and the number of kids from low-income backgrounds going on to university when they're involved in this program. So hopefully the data is showing that we're having a positive impact and, um, and we're letting school students know that this is an opportunity for them if they'd like to, if, if they'd like to be involved that science is something that they can do if they'd like to be involved in it um and i think through that we and through the the support of them doing research and through the crazy things that they discover about the universe um we've had more than 220 of those school students now publish papers um i'll leave it there and i'll, I'll switch over to questions because i'm i think i'm overrunning a bit um yeah thank, thanks so much for listening oh that's absolutely wonderful thank you so much will um and thank you for highlighting all the wonderful projects that Orbits do, and also highlighting mine. Um, for the sake of time, if people do want to know about electrons, lasers, and quantum things in schools, uh, pop me an email, and I'm happy to explain more. Now, the questions, we've got quite a few, and I'm going to start at the top. Uh, the first one is, are there any particular reasons why schools in the UK do not have physics teachers? Yeah, it's a systemic problem. Um, so we not enough people go on to do undergraduate physics so it's just it's just a, a cycle of vicious <laughs> a vicious leap so not enough people doing undergraduate physics um so there are less teachers so there's less teachers inspiring kids to do to do physics so there's less undergraduates doing physics and we're just trapped in this loop um and particularly lots and lots of people from um from backgrounds that basically aren't rich white and male don't feel like they don't feel like science is for them at the moment. Um, and that's something we really need to address. And if we address that, then I think we would solve all of the shortage problems with, with at undergrad and then all of the shortage problems uh, in, in teaching. Um, cool. 
Um, the next question is, um, I really like the Orbits program slash model. Do you see potential areas for expansion slash collaborations? Um, yes, we'd love to get involved with anyone who would like to get involved with Orbits. Um, certainly, so we, we've just launched the Medical Physics Hub. Um, we've got, actually, I should have said this earlier, we've got a biologist at University of Kent doing it, and so they've got a school. Um, they're about to start with uh, the Urshline College in, in Ramsgate um, to do to look at new vaccines for COVID and then and also new vaccines for in in general. Um, so yes, I think we've started in astrophysics, but we in no way see ourselves as limited to astrophysics. I think what what this is about is is an opportunity to shift the education system to make um, and an opportunity to shift policy to make sure that kids feel like they can be involved in the very forefront of things and particularly kids from low income backgrounds, for instance, um, and kids from ethnicities and genders who are underrepresented um, feel like they this is an opportunity for them. And yeah, I'll add to that, that also as hub leader of the, of the LCN, we aren't just quantum, I'm quantum, but the, we have what we have in the LCN is just a variety of different disciplines within the STEM uh, rainbow. So um, anyone can be involved. I think yeah, um, I think we 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 started in astrophysics and now we have spread to physics more generally. But I, it's just about giving more school students and also giving more researchers this opportunity, right? Because I think the researchers gain as much from it as the school students do. Oh, very much so. Um, so the next question is: Can teachers from other disciplines adopt slash adapt your model in their pathological contexts? Say, say that again, sorry, I think- it Can teachers from other disciplines adopt slash adapt your model in their pedagogical contexts? Um, yes, so there are other, so so other researchers certainly, certainly can. Um, so to be clear, I don't see the researchers who go into the classroom as, te as teachers. I'm not sure if I misunderstood the question. I don't see the researchers who go into the classroom as teachers. Like to, to become a teacher requires a huge amount of training. And I mean, we, we're just super fortunate in the UK to have so many amazing teachers, but they go through so much training and so much in, on the job training that they have to do every day and understanding that it's, yeah, the researchers who go in aren't teachers, they're researchers in just in a different context. Um, so yes, I, I would very much hope that we can take this model and we can try to do it with lots of other, um, with lots of other fields, even beyond the sciences, maybe into the humanities, the arts. Um, as Abby said, I was a dancer before I was a physicist. Um, so, and in terms of teachers for classrooms, yes, we're like, we're very happy to support teachers with this as much as possible. But what we find is that the majority of our te partner teachers say that other projects, um, and there are lots of amazing projects, right? Like the IRIS project, the Institute for Research in Schools is an incredible foundation. Um, and it's just, it's a, a super cool initiative where it trains up the teachers to, to deliver research with, with the school students themselves. Um, the problem that we find with our teachers is because they're the only physics teachers in the school, they just don't have capacity to do that. They just don't, they either feel like, and if they're not a physics teacher as well, so for instance, my partner teaches a chemistry teacher, um, they maybe don't feel like they have the specialist knowledge. They probably left school at 16 themselves and they don't feel like they have the specialist knowledge to do this. So it, I think the beauty here is, of the Orbit project is that you pair the researcher with the teacher and it's a, it's a real partnership. It's not, it's not training up someone else to do this. And also within orbits, with our orbiteers, you know, our, our researchers are going to schools. We constantly have um, conversations around uh, teaching methods with other teachers. Um, so constantly there's a swap of best practice. We don't just send people off and say, go do research with students. Um, we very much make sure that everyone feels that they're, they're trained or confident in what they do. And that's a really special thing about orbits is that despite becoming incredibly large, we're still very much a family and keep an eye on everyone who's involved in the program so I think uh just just to add to that Abby yeah 100% um so I think Abby and I's roles and and our other hub leads in each group is to try to support the researchers as much as possible with finding areas in their research that they can get the school students involved in and helping them to co-create that project because it can be quite a daunting thing to start with but we I think we're yet to find an area of research where we can find aspects we just have to keep asking questions and, and work together to build these projects but 
yeah, I think it's all about us working as a team and sharing best practice. Like if we're not doing something right, or if we found that something doesn't work, then we share it with the whole group. And we say, I tried this last week, or I've tried this a couple of times now, it's not working. Let's find a different way of doing it and just improving as a group. So the next question uh, first starts with a comment saying, this is an amazing program. Uh, what is the rough budget and how is it funded? And what is your blue sky version of it if you were funded, say, 10 times above now? Yeah, so at the moment we're on a shoestring budget um, and, and the program is really, it's really tenuously positioned, to be honest. I have to win grants every year and we've been super, super lucky that we found people to support us and give us grants every year. Um, but currently we, um, so typically a project costs about £1,500 to run. Uh, so for each school, it costs about one one thousand five hundred pounds to run. But I run, I do this in my spare time, and Abby, well, spare time, in, in quotation marks, and Abby does it in her spare time. Um, so we're doing it voluntarily. And what we really, really, really need now that we're at the scale of sixty schools and hubs all across the UK is a national coordinator. We need funding to to pay for a national coordinator who can do the admin, because I mean I love communicating with the teachers and the researchers, but emailing sixty different schools. To, and doing all of those other things and trying to ensure that I'm a researcher at the same time, which is actually what I'm paid to do, um, is challenging. So the, the Blue Sky version, okay, so the Blue Sky version is that we have hubs at every university across the UK partnering with their local schools um, and making sure that people premium kids and girls and send, send students as well at those schools get these opportunities. Um, and so the Blue Sky version would be hubs across the whole of the UK um, what I think is important is that we it maintains a cohesive organization so that we can share best practice across the hubs. I think it'd be very, very easy for this to splinter. Um, and I think the problem with it splintering is that it's very easy for it to also lose momentum sometimes if someone, if someone drops out or something. Um, so the blue sky version hubs across the UK, all of the, all, all of the school students who don't normally get these opportunities, getting these opportunities across the UK. And then maybe globally, I don't know. And, and shifting the education system to make sure that our education system is reflective of the skills that are necessary for the jobs of tomorrow. Perfect answer. Um, we, will, we will get to our Blue Sky goal one day. <laughs> um, okay, so we have another question saying, are there criteria for uh, choosing which schools or students join the Orbit, Orbit program? Yeah, so... Um, so we don't pick the students within the schools, but we apply our criteria to the schools. So our base criteria for every school is that 50% of the students have to be from pupil premium backgrounds and 50% have to be um, girls or minority genders. Um, sometimes we work with schools, for instance, so I'm, I'm conscious if you're in education then you understand the limits of pupil premium, for instance, um, you have to self-nominate to be pupil premium. So sometimes it's kind of, it's, um awkward and it's embarrassing sometimes for parents to say look I'm not from a very well-off background in my age. and they and pride plays a role in that and it means that students don't nominate as as people premium equally if you've recently migrated to the UK then you're not eligible um so we're willing to be flexible but there are base criteria at every school in terms of which schools we work with um we we prioritize schools when they have one or less physics teacher or schools in areas uh in low-income areas um but as much as possible, we try to ensure that everyone can be involved. The, the limiting factor, as always, is the number of researchers who are willing to take part. Um, and every, every year, that's our limiting factor, how many researchers we can find who, who want to do this and, and whose supervisors are willing to let them do this. So, yeah, and this is fits in with two other questions that I can see here. Is it possible for more schools to join uh, the programme? Yes, schools contact us and we will we will try sort you out we will try pair you with a researcher and then the other uh, question is um oh wow there's more coming in um can other universities join the program um if yes what are the requirements to do so um okay so requirements are that um you're happy to join us i guess and um happy for, to to not want to splinter off and and do it on your own, but you, uh, we would love to have more universities join us. And actually, the Ogden funding is is specifically um, allocated for this role to make sure that other universities have a chance. But yeah. it, again, to come back to two questions ago, I mean, the Ogden Trust have been amazing to us, um, and they're willing to provide the seed funding. But it is only seed funding, and and for sustained programs at new places, we'll have to look at new funding streams. Um, so I think that's our time now uh, to end it too. Um, 
thank you for all of the questions. I'm gonna just uh, screenshot the questions here so we can always um, send out media to reply to those ones. Um, but thank you so much, Will, for the, your wonderful talk. And of course, thank you, Orbitz. Um, Orbitz is amazing. I'm a very biased chair, unfortunately. Um, so uh, next lunch hour com uh, chat will be uh, on Thursday, the 19th of January. And the lecture title is The Last Col Colony. Um, Chagos, uh, a very British tale of exile, justice, and colonial legacy with the speaker, uh, Philippe Sands. So yeah, sounds very interesting. Great, can I, can I add one last thing? So please cool. do feel free to, to get in touch if I didn't answer your question and you're, you're super keen or something. Um, so my email again is w.dunn at ucl.ac.uk. Um, and just to come back to that university's question again. So um, yes, if you're at another university and you'd like to take part, we have like a super flat man management structure as in all of us just discuss and try to make sure that every university is equally, well, not even is equitably represented so that the new universities who are joining get more opportunity than, than UCL, for instance, where we, we feel like we've demonstrated proof of concept. Um, and we we're super lucky to have so much support from from the department and from so many people. So so many researchers who need thanking for this because they sp spend so much time. Anyway, we're we're out of time. Thanks, Sophie. Great. Okay. So, bye everyone. <laughs> bye everyone. Bye.